Our sermon today is taken from Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 to 29. This is the word of God. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf, and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, Why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides. On the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was a writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses's anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, 
Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from, the, from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow blessing upon you this day. Eric. Let's pray. Father in heaven, who are we, O Lord, that you are mindful of us? Who are we that you speak to us and reveal yourself to us? We're grateful, Lord, that you have sent your Holy Spirit and your word to us that we may know you. So, Father, as your word is preached today, I pray that you can soften our hearts and give us ears to hear. That you may search us, Lord, and we may see the beauty of your gospel and fall into deeper love with you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, this week we'll be continuing on our series on the life of Moses, but if you may have noticed that we skipped quite a bit of ahead this week, right? We skipped the end of chapter 20, and now we're in chapter 32. And if you've read the book of Exodus, the end of chapter 20 to chapter 31 is made up mostly of laws and instructions for the life of Israel, for the priesthood, for the tabernacle. And maybe it's just me, because I'm super nerdy, but for me, these instructions and laws are actually super interesting, and they are packed with deep meaning. So we're not skipping over them because we can't preach from them, but so that we can really focus on the life of Moses, because the series is on the life of Moses, and so that we can finish our series by the end of this year. So, two weeks ago, Tazar made the analogy that the Ten Commandments that God gave to Israel could be seen as marital vows that God makes with Israel. And this is such a great analogy, right? Because it describes the covenantal relationship that God has with Israel. So in Exodus 20, we see God getting married to Israel, them exchanging vows. Exodus 20 to 31, we can see God telling Israel his house rules, telling them uh, what their marriage is going to be like, what it needs to be so that they can have a harmonious marriage. We even see instructions for the tabernacle, God's tent where he was supposed to dwell in the middle of his people. It's like they were planning how they were going to live together, the furniture they're going to have, who's going to take care of the house, but just as God was about to move in with Israel, just as the husband and the wife are finally going to live with each other and start their life together, Exodus 32 happens. The husband catches the wife cheating, red-handed. So Exodus 32, verse 1 to 29, is a story of a tragedy. 
is a story of how God's people broke God's heart and how God responds to this. Now, you've probably noticed that some weird stuff happens in our passage, and the story got pretty gory. But I hope by the end of this sermon, we can sense how tragic sin really is. And even despite that, there is still hope for us. So I hope that we can notice three things from the passage. One, the darkening effects of sin. Two, the damning consequences of sin. And three, the decisive work of God's mediator. If you've been coming to CCC for the past few months, or if you've read the book of Exodus, you may have noticed that at this point of the story, God and Israel has had a long history together. Israel was in slavery in Egypt under an oppressive pharaoh who killed their children and forced them into labor, and God saved them from that. And he did this through some miraculous series of events, right? The ten plagues splitting the Red Sea where God drowned Pharaoh's army. So God fought for them. And then now God is taking them to this promised land, a land of milk and honey. But to get there, they need to go through this wilderness where food and water is scarce. But even there, God fed them with bread from heaven every day and a rock that gave them water. So God provided for them. And we need to visualize the scene here to really grasp how messed up this is, right? So this happened after God gave Israel Ten Commandments, so they knew what they were supposed to be doing. So Israel was on the foot of this mountain, and in front of them was this mountain with God's glory appearing as a cloud on top of this mountain where there was fire and thunder and there were trumpet sounds and the ground shook because the sounds were so loud. So Israel definitely knew that God was there. So it's like the wife is cheating while the husband is in the other room planning on the new house he was going to build for her. So what drove Israel to this? How can they cheat on the God that saved them like this? If you look at verse 1, we know what triggered this event was the fact that Moses isn't back yet. The last time anybody seen Moses at this point was 40 days ago. They knew Moses went on top of the mountain to God's glory cloud, and the Bible tells us that he was there 40 days and 40 nights without food or water. So they got anxious, right? They thought, well, what happened to Moses? He must have died up, up there, or he must have left us. And so what's going to happen to us? And we can notice that in verse 1, that Israel thought that Moses, and not God, was the one responsible for taking them out of Egypt. He was their guide in the wilderness, their leader. They thought that he was the reason why they made it this far in the first place. Moses was everything to them. And so here was Israel in the wilderness where there are many dangers and threats. And they thought the one person who could help them is gone. That they lost their insurance policy. And if something were to happen to them, they would be helpless. They felt vulnerable. It's like a child who is in a foreign place, and then she looks around, and she can't see her mom and dad. Got scared. Israel panicked, and it looks like they even got violent. They pressured Aaron, their leader, while Moses is gone, to do something about it. And instead of fearing God, Aaron feared the people and made the unfortunate mistake of making the golden calf. 
Again, Israel theoretically knew what to do in this situation at this point. Yet, at that time, their anxieties were speaking louder to them than their senses. Now at this point, if you've been following along the story of Israel, it'll be normal for us to think, what is wrong with you, Israel? Don't you remember what God is capable of? You saw the Red Sea thing, the ten plagues, you're eating the manna. And didn't God just tell you the Ten Commandments? What Israel does here by disobeying God is supposed to seem absurd and foolish. Notice here, though, that unlike before, it wasn't their physical needs like hunger or thirst that was leading them to disobey God. Because Israel was actually fine, right? They were still eating the manna, and God was still actually protecting them. But because they felt vulnerable, Instead of responding to the situation by trusting God and remembering His promises and His goodness for them, they lean on their own understanding to assess the situation, so they freaked themselves out, and it made them forget what God had done for them and to ignore what God had said. And this, friends, is what anxiety does, isn't it? Instead of being grateful for what we do have, it makes us fixate and obsess over what we don't, And it makes us think and feel that our situation is worse than it is. And that's when we get paranoid and depressed. So what happened with Israel here, why Israel could forget so easily, is an example of what theologians call the noetic effects of sin. Right? As we read in our Confession of Sin, Romans 1, that sin is not only something that we do outwardly, but it also does something to us inwardly. It makes us, whether we realize it or not, suppress the things that we know to be true about God. Romans 1 says that sin darkens our hearts and makes our thinking futile. Instead of seeing the world in light of God's truth, it makes us rather trust in our own limited thoughts and conclusions. So as we saw in the case of Israel, it is this that made them continually lose sight of God's salvation and daily providence for them. And it is this that caused them to act based on fear, the fear that they convinced themselves of instead of trust. And it looks like here, in making the golden calf, they did one thing wrong. But if we look closely at this sin, there are a lot of levels to this sin. Okay, so first of all, Israel's darkened hearts led them to to worship God falsely, right? At a a glance, you might think what's going on here is that Israel rejected Yahweh and then made a whole new God that they worship. But notice verse 5, the proclamation by Aaron. After he made the calf, he says that this is a feast unto the Lord. The Lord there should be in all caps in your Bible and in your printouts. When we see the Lord in all caps, we should be thinking that this refers to the name of Yahweh. Right? Not some general God, the particular name of God that he revealed to Israel himself. And archaeologically, it is well documented that the gods in the ancient Near East would be riding on a calf. And cows themselves represented some sort of deity. Anyway, so this calf is supposed to represent not some other God, but Yahweh. So claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They broke the second commandment. Then you might also notice that in verse 4, we can read that Aaron says, these are your gods, 
plural. But in Hebrew, the plural word for gods, Elohim, is commonly used to refer to the singular Yahweh. But it is translated here as gods in English because the verb used in the Hebrew is in plural form. What this means is that Israel's darkened hearts and futile minds was confused about who Yahweh was. So they treated him like any other god that the nations worshipped. Not as capital G God, not as the one who made heaven and earth and is above other gods, not as the one true God, but simply a kind of God like the ones the people around them was worshipping. So in effect, they were not worshipping Yahweh, but a God of their own imagination. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshipped the creature instead of the creator who was blessed forever. They broke the first commandment. And so they created this God of their own imagination. They made an image and worshipped it. They worshipped the work of their hands and they called this thing Yahweh. The name they were not supposed to take in vain. And they broke the third commandment. And to add insult to injury, on top of breaking the first three commandments, they broke them using the gifts that God gave them. Notice what they used to make this golden calf, right? Their gold jewelry. How did they get this jewelry? They got it from Egypt. God gave it to them from Egypt. And they were supposed to use it for the tabernacle where God was supposed to be worshipped. It's like if you steal your wife's jewelry and you give it to the mistress that you're cheating on her with. Right? It's thoroughly messed up. Now, maybe today, we won't make an actual idol and then bow down to it. But we can also worship God falsely. And we can also fall to sinning as badly if we're not careful. If we do not prayerfully and daily study the word of God individually and together, but instead we speculate on what we think God is like based on our own imagination and understanding, if we base what we think God is like by what we think God should be like or what we want him to be like and not based on what he himself revealed himself to be in his word, we can end up worshipping a different God. We can end up worshipping him based on how we like our worship to be and what we want our life to be and not on what he said actually glorified him. We can also end up selectively only believing things about God that are useful to us, that make us feel better about ourselves and comfort us. Then we might end up only obeying the commands that are convenient for us while ignoring the uncomfortable teachings that challenge us and missing out on doing the hard things that will actually make us grow. So instead of believing the true God and obeying His word, we will be worshipping an imaginary God and practicing a made-up faith. Friends, if we do not look to God's word to find out who He is, there is no way for us to truly be able to know who God is. And if we don't remind ourselves of who He is daily, like Israel, we too might forget who God actually is. And we risk making our own golden calves and end up not worshiping God, 
but the work of our hands. So after sinning so badly, Israel did, what good does it do them, right? It only makes them act like the world and it can only give them a false sense of confidence and imagined security, right? The truth is, right, if we don't trust in the Lord and we lose the person or thing that we have our hopes on, in other words, if we lose our Moses and we suddenly become aware of our vulnerability, simply being obedient to God can suddenly seem unrealistic. So our darkened hearts and futile minds react by trying to find other ways to calm our anxieties. Then we, try, then we find ourselves being tempted and looking at the world and seeing what they do. Right? Because when we're vulnerable and needy, it's easier to think that the grass is greener on the other side. That people who are not in our position have it better. And it leads us to think that if it works for them, why would it not work for us? We see this, right, with Israel in verse 25. After Moses confronts Aaron about what Israel did, it says that Israel had broken loose. This phrase means to say that they are acting like people who do not know God. Israel, remember, was supposed to be a holy nation, different, set apart, representing God, but they end up making a God that is modeled after the God of the nations and worshiping this idol like the nation worships their idols. Then what happens? Notice in verse 5 and 6. Israel rejoiced. They had a party. They were playing and dancing after they finished the golden calf. They thought they solved their problem, that they made themselves no longer vulnerable. And it is true, right? When we take our security and fulfillment into our own hands, it can be comforting. It's nice to feel like we can do something, make something, or meet someone that can potentially give us everything we need, give us the security and fulfillment that we seek. And if we do succeed and we finally have whatever, whoever this is, there is indeed, there could be indeed a sense of fulfillment and security that we experience. We can experience some kind of competence, right? Some kind of confidence and affirmation from it. But it turns out that humans are generally very bad at judging our ability to do things. So there's this psychological study that found what's called the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? And what triggered this study was that there was this guy who were robbing banks and he didn't wear a mask. In fact, he waved to the camera. Obviously, he got caught. But when he got caught, he was shocked. And he said, I wore the juice. Why? Because he thought that if he squirted lemon juice on his face, cameras wouldn't detect him. So when he was caught, he was genuinely surprised. So it triggered this study because it perplexed people. How did this guy get so confident? And now it turns out that the study found that people with the least competence has as much confidence in their ability as the expert does. Why? Because people who are not competent don't actually possess the knowledge to be able to know how incompetent they are, right? It's like me when I'm singing. In my head, it sounds like Ed Sheeran. In reality, it might be different. But that's only because I don't know enough music to know how badly I'm actually doing, right? And we, as humans, are exceptionally bad at easing our anxieties and finding contentment. 
the security that we experience from the idols that we make can only ever be imagined. Because simply, we can't know enough about ourselves and about the world to be able to truly judge whether our idols have given us genuine, true, and lasting security, peace, and joy. Only God can give us this because He created us. He placed us in our situation. And He, in, the, in His surpassing riches, is able to give us more abundantly than we can ever ask or think. So trusting in Him is the only way that our joy and peace that we seek could be real. Otherwise, we'll be robbing banks with lemon juice in our faces and we will eventually be caught either in sinful idolatry or in the epiphany of our futility. So point two, the damning consequences of sin. So what is the consequence of this? How does God react in our sinfulness when we disobey Him and instead bow down to the idols that we make? God is angry. Look at verse 10. This could not be more clear. God was so angry that he was ready to end Israel right there and then. God was done with Israel. Right? Look at verse 7. God tells Moses that Israel is your people that you led out of Egypt. It's like a more intense version of what my mom says to my dad when I do something wrong. Your son got in trouble again. Right? Contrast this to how in Exodus, previously, Israel is described to God. He calls Israel my people. That Israel was God's firstborn son. That, God's was, that Israel was God's treasured possession. But repeatedly, Israel disrespects and offends God. The more they were called, the more they went away. And they kept on testing God's patience. So God now is ready to allow them to reap the fruits of their labor. The Bible is clear that the only fitting punishment for sin is death. We cannot sugarcoat this. At church, we mostly hear about God loving us and God being good to us. It's true, but in texts like these, it is appropriate that we are reminded about how serious sin is. We must not forget that God hates sin. When we sin, it is not only like we broke some impersonal legalistic rule, right? It's not like being stopped by the Indonesian police. If you get stopped by the police here, they might come to you smiling, right? And you're like, I'm sorry, officer. Don't be sorry. I'm not mad. Of course, he's not. <laughs> it is more a, like a personal offense. It is an insult to him, a declaration of war. It is like spitting in God's face. But this should not scare us away from him but it should push us to greater love for Him and greater determination to obey Him. So I appreciate, personally, my parents now more than when I was a kid, although they probably tried to show me that they loved me more when I was a kid. Because as a kid, I thought, since they're my parents, it's their job to love me. But as I got older, I realized more what a thoroughly sinful child I was, first of all, and how hard my parents had to work to raise me, the sacrifices they made for me, and how much patience they needed considering how much grief I gave them. 
And as I mature, I became more and more aware of how blessed I am to have them. So even though now I'm more independent from them than ever, I am more grateful now for them than ever. Similarly with God, right? As we mature in our faith, we discover more and more how sinful we really are. And knowing how much God had to bear with us, how angry it at our sins actually made Him, and how much He hates sin, we grow in our appreciation of His patience, how He daily bears with us. And as we come into maturity, we better understand how undeserving and great His love is for us, especially considering how much it cost Him. But although He is angry with us, God's anger is not just pure hatred or rage, like one would show an enemy, but it is a more reluctant kind of anger. So let's talk about the weird part in the passage. So you might notice that there is this part in the passage in the text that in verse 20, where Moses destroys his idol, he ground it up and made Israel drink it, right? You might have read this and thought, what on earth? But if you were an ancient Israelite, it would be clearer to you what Moses is doing here. So in Numbers 5, it mentions that there is a practice in ancient Israel where if a husband feels jealous and thinks his wife is cheating on him, he would take her to the priest and the priest would make this cocktail of barley, dirt, and holy water, and the wife would drink it, and if she, would, and if she was innocent, she'll, she'll be fine. But if she was guilty, she'll feel immense pain, and then a curse would come on her and she would become barren. Now the purpose of this is for there to be some way to have a divine witness over this, this dispute, right? So that the husband w won't be accusing this wife constantly, and so that the wife can also prove her innocence. Now husbands, Imagine if you did this, took your wife to the priest, made her drink some dirt, then you were wrong, it will not end well for you, right? So it's fair. So what Moses does here is that he accuses Israel of committing adultery. He's looking for some divine witness about their guilt, and this sheds light on what happened in verses 27 to 28 where Moses commands the Levites to kill the Israelites, and 3,000 perished. So Moses here was not commanding some indiscriminate mass murder, but that through this test, Moses exposed the guilty, and ex it exposed those who hated God and led Israel astray. And Moses simply became the executor of God's judgment. We may think that this is harsh, but again, we cannot sugarcoat it. Sin is a serious issue. We should really be asking why only some of them died because all of them, to some extent, were guilty. And I realize this might really challenge our views on what a loving God should be like. But biblically, God is not acting out of character. God wasn't just lashing out. God only stayed true to what he says in Exodus 20 verse 5 and 34 verse 7. That he will by no means clear the guilty and he will visit the iniquity of those who hate him to the third and fourth generation so the kind of anger God has to Israel here is analogous to the one someone would have to a cheating spouse on the one hand God is outraged but on the other hand because God loves them so much there is deep anguish over what the relationship has become I'm sure that those of us here who have experienced being cheated on or betrayed somehow by someone we love, 
can relate to this. Imagine again, right? The husband doing the numbers five thing, and if your and if his wife was really cheating on him, right? He would be praying if he loved his wife that he was wrong. He wants to be wrong. But if he was right, there is a mix of intense anger over betrayal, but also profound sadness over the curse that's fallen over your wife and that your relationship with her will never be the same. Sin is a serious issue. Seriously angers God and it seriously breaks his heart. So what hope is there for us? Point three, the decisive work of God's mediator. So like Israel, we also have sinned. And like Israel, we also have broken God's heart and we deserve to be judged and abandoned by him. And we see from our passage that the only reason why Israel survived is because of what Moses did. And there are two things that he did that I want to point out. One, Moses commits to the glory of God. And two, Moses commits to Israel. So Moses commits to the glory of God. If we take a look at verses 11 and 13, what does Moses say to turn away God's anger? Moses reminds God of the promise he had made to Abraham and asks him to glorify his name to the nations like Egypt through his mercy. Moses does not try to make excuses for Israel. Moses does not defend his, their actions. But Moses asks God to show mercy instead of justice, to not exclude Israel from the covenant promises. Not only that God would have been justified in, in destroying Israel, but God would have started a new people with Moses. Look at verse 10. And Moses is, after all, a descendant of Abraham. So starting a new people with Moses would technically still fulfill the promise. So Moses knew that God would not be breaking his promise. But Moses loves Israel so much that he wants them to know and experience God's faithfulness. And also, it wasn't like God's name would have been dishonored if he actually destroyed Israel. God's justice would have been served. He would be glorified in that. And it's not like God had to prove himself or is worried about what Egypt feels about him anyway. But Moses was so passionate about God's glory that he didn't want anyone to misunderstand who God is. But Moses wanted everyone to know God as he knew God, that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. So our mediator, Jesus, the Son of God, came so that his Father can be glorified, so that God's wrath could be satisfied, and on the cross, his righteousness made known, and also so that his mercy may not only be known to all nations, but be enjoyed by them. That they may not be, remain enemies of God, but they too can be called sons of God. And they can call God their father. Jesus was not okay with leaving humanity to perish, even though he was just to do so. And we shouldn't be okay with it either. We should ask for the heart of Christ that seeks for every nation, tribe, and tongue to come to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Secondly, Moses commits to Israel. We look back in verse 10, where God basically tells Moses to leave him alone because he, he is so angry. God even tells Moses that he plans to basically make him the new Abraham. 
But interestingly, Moses actually disobeys God here and stays there and begs God to show mercy to Israel. Because of Moses' commitment to Israel, even though Moses himself knew firsthand how corruptible and quick to turn away they are, how stubborn they are, Moses knew that Israel was a liability. But Moses, God's chosen one, the only one so far in the Bible who is called by, G- by God to be his friend, Moses stands in the breach for them so that God does not destroy them. Moses did not save himself, even though he had the option. What did he do instead? He went down to the mountain to be with Israel, and then he does something weird. Right? He takes something that is more valuable than anything we can ever find on earth today. Tablets of stone with a law written by the finger of God himself with the writing of God, the same finger that brought the plagues to Egypt, the, that contained the law that God graciously gave to his people as terms of fellowship with him, and God smash, I, mean, I mean, Moses smashes these tablets into pieces at the bottom of the mountain. Why? It is both symbolic to show how severe their sin is, but it is also an act of trying to cancel God's covenant with them. A commentator puts it this way, that because Israel had sinned like this, Moses had only two options. Stay up in the mountain with God, keep the law, and watch Israel perish. Or... Go down with Israel, try to cancel the covenant, risk being judged with the hope that Moses' personal relationship with God might spare Israel. Moses chose Israel over himself. And our Lord Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, was born in human flesh, and humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, death on the cross. Moses, God's servant, came down from the mountain of God. Christ, God's son, came down from heaven. However, Moses made Israel drink their guilt and spared only some of judgment. Christ drank the cup of God's wrath for all of his people by giving his life on the cross. After Moses' intercession, the people of Israel sinned and rebelled again, and many still perished in the wilderness afterwards, because Moses only came to Israel with God's law on tablets of stone. But Christ will not lose any that the Father has given him. Why? Because the Spirit of Christ will write his law on the tablets of our hearts. And he will heal us of our darkened hearts and futile minds. Friends, this is the only way we can ever be healed of our darkened hearts. We can stop being deceived. And whenever we feel vulnerable, we end up worshiping and turning to some worthless idols. That is to have God's law written on our hearts. To believe in the true and better Moses, the Son of God, himself. So turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in this wonderful face. Then finally, the idols of this world will seem useless and dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are humbled, O Lord, 
that you send your Holy Spirit to us to write your laws in our hearts, that you have made known yourself to us. I pray, Father, that you can shame the idols that we've made for ourselves in our hearts, that you can show them to us as futile and worthless, and you can enlighten us and open our eyes to your glory that we may fixate upon you and think about you first and foremost so that we can leave the idols that we've made and destroy them. For you alone are worthy and you alone are able to satisfy us. In your son's name, amen.